part of what a leader does is to instill confidence, is demonstrate that he or she knows what they're talking about and communicates to people, if you listen to me and follow what I'm suggesting, we can fix this. When the stock market crashed, Franklin Roosevelt got on television and didn't just talk about the, you know, the, the princes of greed. He said, look, here's what happened. Hey, everyone. Uh, that is a... Uh, <laughs> you know, probably a face that many of you are uh, familiar with, but a little bit younger, maybe a little bit more cognizant. Um, but uh, I'm maybe a face that you don't know. Uh, I'm Kale. I'm filling in for Ben tonight. Uh, ben, unfortunately, can't uh, be here this evening. Um, he has uh, a family situation that he is uh, dealing with at the moment. Um, and so I know that he would uh, very much appreciate all of you uh, sending him some very warm thoughts in the comments and in the live chat. Uh, but in his absence, we have a, a good show tonight. Um, it's going to be a little bit shorter than we typically do. Um, and uh, we're going to start with the full crew and then we're going to have uh, a historian Harvey JK on uh, to talk that history that you all want to hear. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, I want to add to the stream um, some faces you probably know, including Andy. Hey, Andy, how are you doing? Hey, what's up? Uh, Kelly. Kelly, how's it going? Great. And of course, Harvey. Harvey, how are you doing? I can't decide between doing the wave like Kelly did. Or Did, did you do this? Deuces. <laughs> Over in England, that's like... <laughs> I, I, I picked that up in Baltimore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is a this is a very um American centric show. <laughs> <laughs> not not entirely sure how much of the world exists outside of of the US. So this is this is just deuces. Okay. <laughs> um but uh yeah, so I think what we're, what we're going to start with is you may have seen uh there was uh, a piece that came out in Politico recently. Um the headline reads not a healthy environment, Kamala Harris, office rife with dissent. Uh, Andy, do you want to, do you maybe want to pitch this? What's going on with this article? Well, uh, basically, uh, from, um, uh, I, I apologize, I didn't really read it before we came on, uh, uh, partly because I was making the graphics, but uh, uh, basically Kamala recently went to El Paso, Texas to, uh, uh, to, to talk about the border. And um, I'm sure everybody can remember all the wonderful clips we got of, uh, uh, of this, which, you know, we never saw because she really didn't do anything. The whole trip was a disaster. Um, I actually watched everything from it. Uh, there was like a lot of, uh, a lot of great B-roll that she did while she was at the, uh, uh, at the various different centers and at the meetings. Um, she did speak with some uh, good activists on the ground and, um, However, uh, then she gave a very tone deaf and very hard to hear press conference at a airport, which um, uh, people latched on to saying that she never left the airport. Uh, and uh, the, her office is like angry about how badly everything went. I mean, like, like none of the news stations had direct audio from this. They recorded it in a airport hangar with a fan on you know, from the speaker. So you have all this background noise. Um, I'm actually deaf in one ear and, and whenever I'm in a noisy environment, that's exactly how I hear everything is, is just like the audio from that. So if you, if you uh, didn't hear anything about the, uh, about her trip to El Paso, that's why. Um, and there, there's a, 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 you know, a big, um, big, uh, you know, 
when, when she first was uh, assigned to uh, take care of the, the issues on the border, she was the one who was supposed to be, uh, uh, you know, headlining it. The rights like, well, why don't you go to the border? Um, she instead went to Guatemala, if you remember that a while back, and then said, don't come, which was mm -hmm. also just like terrible optics. And this could have been a chance just politically uh, speaking that she could have, um, you know, revised all that. And she did take some nice photos, like I said, we have some nice B-roll, but nothing really of substance came out of it because her speech uh, afterwards, if you try to listen to it, uh, she really didn't say anything. Um, uh, just talking about the root causes. Um, the one thing that uh, has been driving me a little bit nuts is that uh, people are saying that El Paso is not, near, uh, not on the border. Um, which is a right-wing talking point. And uh, I was like, no, she's six mile, 600 miles from the border. It's like, no, she's 600 miles from McAllen, if you want to put up that map. Um, McAllen, Texas is where the center of a lot of the immigration uh, is happening right now. Uh, but you can see that there's like uh, basically four different uh, paths to get to the, uh, you know, into the country that people are taking. And El Paso happens to be the second largest. Uh, however, because McAllen is receiving more immigrants right now, um, it's, uh, you know, that's, that's where the, the, the main focus is. These uh, tr uh, pathways are actually along trail, uh, you know, uh, on trains. Uh, La Bestia is what they're called down there, uh, what they call it down there. And they, they actually, uh, you know, people from um, South and Central America will climb up on top of the train. Uh, they're chased by police getting on the train. People fall off, lose limbs. It's, it's absolutely horrifying. And, um, uh, you know, but that's why we have those those four select paths. You can see a, a map like that for, and then they, there's different ways uh, coming in uh, after that point. But uh, right now, everybody seems to be heading towards um, uh, uh, McAllen, Texas. Um, very interesting that that's a right wing talking point. <laughs> yeah, I've heard a few um, people on the left saying that she didn't. You know that that. Uh, I mean that it's not on like the like that's not the epicenter, and it's like. Well, I mean, it is on yeah. the border, but um, Kale. So I, I, there. I, I can summarize the the political mm. article. Yes, please. Yeah. Everyone is fighting. That's the summary. So mm. everyone in Kamal's office, according to the article, is mad at somebody. Um, mm. The gist of the article is not that they are mad at Kamal Harris. Um, the gist of the article is that they are mad at her chief of staff, um, Tina, F is it Flore? Flore? Flore. Yeah. Flore. Um, and that she has, um, historically, uh, as she was, um, Bill Clinton's chief of staff in the past, um, that she's blocked access to whoever she was, you know, that she's just. And, and that she's really blocked access to whoever she was the chief of staff for. Mm -hmm. um, and that uh, that seemed to be people's main beef, not that Kamala Harris herself was um, running things in, I mean, ultimately like the buck has to stop with the, with Kamala Harris, but um, that, that Tina Flora was, um, is uh, running things in a way that people, that is making it a, an uncomfortable and difficult environment for people because they can't seem to uh, get any ideas across. There's miscommunications, they're um, not able to do, effectively do their jobs and that the, um, as 
opposed to how it was some, in some ways reported um, through leaks, through leaks like that, uh, you know, that we're saying that um, that Harris's staffers, it was like a surprise that she was going to uh, El Paso, that rather, um, you know, uh, her chief of staff said that it was intentional that they didn't tell everybody because they didn't want it to become a big media circus, which, mm -hmm. okay. <laughs> I mean, you, you do, they do release schedules. And even if you release the schedule the day of the media pick up and go and it will, you know, I mean, I don't know why you wouldn't be able to tell your internal staff, some of whom are going to have to also pick up and go that day. Um, and so it seems like they're frustrated um, in different ways about that. And then, um, you know, there have been departures. Um, and I think that part of the other point of it is that she hasn't retained staff the way mm -hmm. that other people have from office to office to office as they move along in their political career. Um, she had to, because of the amount of leaks during her presidential campaign when she joined Biden on the ticket, she had to let everybody go. And mm -hmm. didn't have to, but she basically let everybody go and took on his people as hers and it, it stopped the leaks. Um, right. they, they probably told her to let everybody go, the mm -hmm. Biden people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she didn't, I mean, we could well, still see, be like, I'm not, I'm not comfortable doing that completely. Yeah. I mean, it seems like she's, of course, like she gets, she becomes a massive target for the right yeah. that uh, so many attacks get lobbed to her. And some of it, obviously um, there's just like really awful reasons for that, um, that she ends up becoming an easy target in the administration. Um, and, you know, for all like the, the obvious reasons, but I think, a lot of it also has to do with the fact that like she constantly steps in this, that like she like in, in like this article just being greater confirmation of the fact that like as someone who is, an, is responsible for others in an office, uh, it's it's completely dysfunctional. Um, and this is, of course, you know, Kamala's presumably going to be the person that the Democrats want to put up in the future as like this will be the heir to the Biden administration. This will be um kind of the face of the, of the, you know, emerging new democratic party uh, because they think, you know, we can squelch the Bernie side, we can squelch the progressives or not even squelch, but just, we can kind of put them in a box and keep them over here. And then we can get the 60% of the party that is not in that camp to all rally around this person. Uh, but she is deeply disliked by uh, like opinion polls have her like way down in negative numbers um, and a lot of it is entirely her own fault that she can like, the, this is just something about her as a, as a person, like there's something about her personality. Um, it speaks to her as the, you know, when she was the, the DA of California, um, the, like, there's this really awful videos of her, uh, you know, bo uh, boasting about locking up, uh, mothers. And it's, it, I think it's just, there's. I, like, I feel like she ended up getting lifted into the situation um, as, as, a, as a front runner candidate originally and now as vice president um, because, 
a lot of corporate interests really like her and maybe just on paper, maybe they just kind of, she checks the right boxes, but otherwise like she is, you know, and not that, you know, I'm rooting for the, the, you know, the corporate Democrats to, you know, have a, have a nice bright future, but they're certainly not going to with, with Harris. I mean, look, okay. I just have to say this, that I am by no means a fan of Kamala Harris and I was not a fan of, of Hillary Clinton, um, although she is more interesting to me just because she's so blatantly bloodthirsty that it's mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I, I, I don't know. Like, I mean, it's just, it's she, absolutely she's, true. Yeah, she's just it, totally out there. But like, you know, I think there might be something to what you had to say about there's something about her as a person. And I think that that thing really might be that she's a woman and at, speaking as a woman you do get into these certain situations where you know okay like you're running an office and no matter what you do you know i mean like i've had people that worked under me in certain situations like i don't know if you guys know but i've never been vice president of the united states or anything like that but you know i've had <laughs> I, I know andy I, I didn't tell you that, but um, I treated you I'm like checking, that. I'm, I'm checking sorry. the show notes right now. <laughs> yeah. Double check. But I mean, I've had people working under me and it's like, people want you to be their mommy. And it's like, I'm not your mommy. I like, I'm the person that tells you what to do. And like, I don't have to make you feel good about when you do bad things or that you, you know, like, like I happen to have been like overly nice, like and not like maybe the best like manager in the world at different times, you know, like from being like younger or like whatever. But like they 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 don't like people don't from my personal experience because I didn't really believe this, like r- reading about it. You know what I mean? That that people's expectations would be even women, it, same women and men both that when their boss is a woman, their expectations are just so different of how they're going to be treated. And, you know, with a man, they're just much more deferential. And with a woman, you know, it doesn't really matter how the woman acts. They're just more surprised if, if you know, the woman is very like, you know, and th- I, that's kind of what I liked about Hillary Clinton because like, if Hillary Clinton was like nice to you, you'd be surprised. That's kind of what I liked about her. Like if she was scared. like, yeah, yeah it, you, you'd be scared of her. And then if she was nice, you'd be surprised, which is like what I want in a president sometimes, you know, it's like you, you want people to be like kind of a little scared of the person, not like think that they're crazy. The person is crazy and like, can't like, you know, like, you know, figure out like how to make cereal and stuff like that. Like our last president, but like, um, I really think that like, like, like just this whole story, like a, a story where the whole office is complaining and they're backbiting and they're saying it, this, this isn't a comfortable, this isn't a safe zone for me. Like, this isn't a, like, I don't feel safe here. That's one of the mm-hmm. things in, in an article that I read. It's like, 
hi, like you work in DC. It's horrible there. Everyone mm -hmm. acts like shit. Like, like I, you know, I, I worked there for a short period of time and it was at like, I'm not going to say where, but like it was, it totally wasn't even political and everyone was crazy mm -hmm. like, because it was DC. And like, that's what you should expect. I, and, and I just kind of get that vibe from like, you know, I don't know, is, is, is Joe Biden's office, like, is he going around patting everybody on the head? Like he's like some nice grandpa or something, or, or are they expecting it to be shitty, like, you know, long hours days because it's the president's office. Yeah. But I think no, he, he's not patting them on that. He's stroking. Yeah. Can I just, I just want to say that the, the, she's not the boss of the office, Harris. That's what she has the chief of staff for. Right. Which mm. means that, that if the, if this article has truth in it, then she needs to fire her chief of staff. Because if Harris gets involved in the minutia of managing an office and managing all these egos, because keep in mind, all these people who got the jobs there, they took the jobs with expectations that either in 2000 and wait, 2024 or 2028, they're yeah. going to be on a presidential campaign. Hmm. So you can imagine the jockeying. But the fact is that if she's literally reducing herself to running an office, then no. then she's. Yeah. No, no, I, I know. But what I'm but even beyond that, I, I gotta say that it was always amazing to me that she ever got chosen to be vice pre the vice presidential nominee. Uh, yeah. It made sense in the corporate democratic world, undeniably, okay, as well as in the effort to appeal to South Asians and, and all the more uh, African Americans. But it's also the case that uh, to be crude about it, she was a loser. Mm-hmm. I mean, her campaign was a disaster. I mean, she wasn't and, even a loser. No one voted for her. Right. Sorry. She wasn't even a loser, I guess. <laughs> I mean, it was really, really. And, and along the way, to add to her own problem, she dropped the very things that she had decided to run on, like Medicare for all. She backed off. I mean, so, in fact, my wife had told me that you know, she read the Jill Biden. This is back before the uh, convention that Jill Biden had told a group of women, possibly, I don't, I'm not sure if it was here in Wisconsin or Minnesota, wherever it was that she was, um, not my wife wasn't there, but that um, Biden would never choose Harris because of what she did to him on the debate stage. And then he did. So they had the, they did their calculations, but it's, but I'm not sure. Does Biden she, remember? What's that? Does Biden actually remember that, uh, what she did to him on the debate stage? Uh, good. That's interesting. Well, can I then? Good, because I have a question. As long as you ask that, did he not say to who's that N former NBC or NBC sort of person? Did he say that FDR went on TV? Did he say that? Yeah. 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 We, we got a graphic if you want to see it. I don't have it on. No. I don't oh, okay. 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 I made one. <laughs> I to, you know, uh, I don't know. I mean, she can't, she won't, if she's the candidate in 2024, then. I'm gonna I'm gonna mention something now, which maybe Kale and I'll take up in a show sometime. Then Josh Hawley will be the president, probably. Probably. Um, I think. Yeah. Uh, one thing see I that, Harvey? Well, no. I generally don't predict things prop right, though I did predict Biden Harris eighteen, you know, long time ago for as the likely outcome of twenty twenty. Yeah. I mean, I think I, with with Kamala and and her staff. I mean, I, I think 
to me, the, the most relevant piece of the whole thing is just kind of like this, like professional milieu backbiting careerism. Like that's, that's the world that she comes from. Those are the people that are, are in that world that like Biden is like, you know, for, you know, I'm, it's not a defense of Biden, but Biden is like an older generation of Democrats. So like the, um, the Harris style and also like the Harris people are not, um, the Obama people, like the Obama people were uh, like a massive kind of uh, deviation from like this, this generation of, of politicos that came up that like, the, and, and they either have like exited politics at this point or, uh, or have completely kind of transformed themselves. And again, not a, not an endorsement of Obama's team, but that they were very distinct from like the Clinton world of, of DC politics. Um, and, and, and like they were able to win because they actually knew how to do effective politics. Uh, whereas like this kind of thing is going to, this is like, I think going to uh, become the reoccurrent trend within the democratic party of this problem of the fact that it is primarily made up of professional class people that have a professional uh, um, set of interests and a professional worldview that the vast majority of the population finds um, uh, obnoxious. They find it um, callous. They find it, um, you know, uh, overly politically correct. They, you know, it's all these kinds of things. Um, and uh, right or wrong, like that's the political reality that, um, you know, and I think there is like a lot of that to be, you know, critical of, of, of professional people. And I come from the Jackman world. We had Catherine Liu on not too long ago talking about a book that she wrote um, on the uh, basically it's mostly just a polemic kind of taking down uh, like professional class culture. Um, but it is like it's uh, it's destructive because it, you get these kinds of situations. Um, and that's those are the people that are like infesting the party. That's like what it's made of. Um, anyways, uh, I guess quick last words, um, and then I'll, I'm going to transition over to, to Harvey solo. Um, any, any last things to throw in there, Andy? Just, just real quickly. Uh, there, there's a great article that came out last month by Kim Tallbear about the commodification of identity, um, which I think, um, plays something into it. And I don't think necessarily we're the right people to really delve into, uh, her, her, uh, essay. But uh, I do want to recommend it. I've uh, posted it in uh, Ben's Discord, so like it's uh, uh, I can I can share it around. Uh, I think I posted it on so, uh, on my Twitter a few uh, weeks ago when I first read it. But uh, I'll be happy to uh, make sure everybody else gets to see it too, um, because I think that's uh, another piece that uh, it's hard to discuss about because you know uh, 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 you know we're all white people here. Um, you know, outside of uh, Kelly, nobody else here can commodify our identity. I don't think. Um, well, I don't. I don't think the point is that we do it. I think it's the uh, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's the social incentives story, to like, do it. Yeah. Uh, can can it, I respond? It's, it's, Wait. I, I know we're not supposed to go off into a new thing, but <laughs> one of the one of the advantages and disadvantages of being my age is that I can remember, I can remember reading the original articles where they talked about in marketing and PR, the whole idea of niche marketing mm -hmm. and the construction and the degree to which, not simply the, the, the exploitation of identity, okay, the blatant kinds of ads, and so, but rather literally cultivating identities 
okay, in a more subtle and a fashion. And and because and now especially in the age of big tech, the degree to which you can I would be great to find out from people to what extent is this in this piece you're talking about, the degree to which they have literally cultivated whole cat I mean the categories are pretty clear in the and and they're driving this in in marketing. Uh, All you gotta do is turn on your turn on your computer and it's gonna be there. Yeah, I think she touches on it a little bit. I know this is uh, her article is actually part of a book she's working on. Uh, oh, okay. But like something, uh, you know, was going on and she felt the need to write the article. And uh, it, uh, it, it's definitely worth um, like Canadian stuff was happening. Uh, so, so the article was needed to be written because uh -huh. uh, she's out of Canada. But, but it's an absolutely uh, a great piece, long, uh, you know, pretty, pretty in-depth, uh, you know, considering it's part of a larger project that she's working on. Cool. So uh, I'll be happy to share that um, right after I bounce. But I thought uh, just just wanted to mention that's actually a nice piece that we didn't get a really chance to talk about because that's a whole other thing. Um, yeah. And, well, and uh, cool. Well, thanks, Andy. Well, yeah. uh, people should check it out. And Kelly, anything else you want to add to the mix? Um, I just have a really complicated hope for 2024, <laughs> which is that something happens. Um, I don't know what that, um, you know, we get another winner of a female candidate somehow because I just, I mean, I really want a woman to be president. Be mayor what you wish for. What? Nikki Haley loved what you just said. No, no, no. <laughs> No, I want a progressive woman to be a candidate, not okay. Nikki Haley. She's a monster. Um, well, she's like a shapeshifter. But um, no, I just mean it can't be Kamala Harris. It, it, just, it just it cannot be anyone who has had anything to do with mass incarceration in this country. Like I it, it's it, it's the most disgusting thing. It's the most disgusting thing, and yeah. I just I, ha I hate her so much. I hate her yeah. so much. Well, I don't put it past the Democrats to to do that. So no, it's been the plan for like yeah. years. Exactly. Sick. They're all sick. You're all sick. All of you. <laughs> well, as long as you don't want a woman involved with mass incarceration, then then you, obviously you'll be upset if Hillary wins the nomination next time. Is not well. Okay, yeah. I never liked Hillary. <laughs> I mean, she's involved in all sorts of. No, I know. Crimes. I, I, I'm, I'm kidding with you. That's yeah. I'm sorry. It would just uh, be a shame. And all these men are just. It's a. I, I'm. I'm just very upset. This hasn't been very cathartic at all, Kale. Well, <laughs> which is the point. Well, but we we got we got to curse out for me. <laughs> yeah, well, we got to we got we, you got to curse out the sick people. I I think I found it cathartic. I hope you did. Oh, okay, just a great. little bit. Great. Oh, great. Was well, cool. that supposed to be a session of catharsis? Yeah. Oh, he didn't tell me that. I'm sorry. That's, that's the first half of Ben yeah. Burgess's show. Is I I I I on Monday nights I used to do David Feldman's show. And then I stopped and I I have watched Ben's. I've been on Ben's. I didn't realize that it opens like this, though, I think. We just, we just started. <laughs> oh, the, okay. the inaugural catharsis. Um, Actually, right. I just, it started like five minutes ago when I got <laughs> really mad. 
<laughs> well, uh, it's now a, we'll have to tell Ben it's a mainstay now. Um, but thank you, Andy. Thank you, Kelly. I'll, I'll talk to you guys again soon. Uh, yeah, thank you for having me on and have a great talk with Harvey. He knows a lot of information. That he does. All right. And talk to you guys later. Tail, I guess. Well, yeah. Thank I'm you. Guessing. <laughs> I don't know for sure. All right. Bye guys. Bye guys. All right, Harvey. Now we get to the real catharsis, past and present and future. Yes, exactly. Um, so uh, if, uh, it's a little awkward, but if you don't know, this is Harvey JK. He's a historian of history. You should read his books, including Take Hold of Our History and Thomas Paine and the Promise of America. I, can, I should have just done it like this. I have the, got him in hand. Um, and uh, always love to talk with Harvey um, about... Uh, whether it be, you know, something historical kind of, we've, we've done a number of talks, I think, relevant to the New Deal and the FDR legacy to, um, you know, and how the, the Biden administration does not at all really stack up to, to the actual legacy of that um, flaws and all. Uh, but um, I wanted to maybe start on a more general um, kind of on history itself, because of course it's been, um something that's been talked about quite a bit, uh, just on the left and, and um, uh, just not, honestly, I mean, what's, what's significant is that it's not just the left, that it's been uh, a debate that's been going on now for um, basically a couple of years now with uh, kind of inaugurated with the, uh, the 1619 project. Um, and um, I, Harvey and I both reread Matt Carp's very good piece in Harper's that uh, came out uh, last month that people should read if they haven't already. History as End, uh, 1619-1776, and The Politics of the Past. Uh, and it's it goes through, it covers a lot of terrain, um, both trying to understand how conservatives understand history, especially right now, how conservative understandings of history have morphed over time. Um, but then also kind of how liberals understand history right now and, and, and what uh, purpose history serves. Um, so maybe maybe I, we should lay out, uh, Harvey, to, to the best of our ability, like, what does history mean for conservatives? What does history mean for liberals? And what does history mean for the left? Okay, so for conservatives, this is, this is characteristic going way, way back in, in, in American history. Um, and let's use the word the past instead of history for a moment, okay? The past was that which was to be defended, protected. Um, keep in mind that whenever conservatives, and for that matter, liberals, talked about the past in whatever way they did, they had a particular construction of it that they were advancing. So, for example, it was very characteristic in the antebellum years for conservatives in the North to talk specifically about defending defending the legacy of the founders. You don't mess with it. And understand, they didn't do it simply because of their reverence for the founders. They also did it because they knew damn well how militant forces were beginning to threaten the stability that had, that had come to seemingly come to prevail. So you had the working men's parties in the 1820s and 30s, you had the beginnings of the feminist movement in the 1830s in, in its frustration with its role in the abolitionist movement, which itself 
represented a threat because the stability of the union was being challenged by the abolitionists. Some of the abolitionists were willing to literally separate from the South, William Lloyd Garrison, the most famous of them. Um, so when conservatives, prominent figures, the professional class and the property of their day, and I'm thinking right now of New England, uh, spoke of defending the past, they meant the legacy of the founders and they were prepared, prepared literally to dismiss those movements as having nothing to offer to American progress, okay? And I'll also add, the best example I can give you is, now that people remember my Thomas Paine affections, is that it's those very people who did everything in their power to suppress the memory of Thomas Paine. They would even often stick in lines, and even, even as they were trying to suppress it, they would stick in lines to sort of, you know, refer to these forces that had been unleashed in the early 19th century as all because of the, the likes of folks like Thomas Paine. Now, I'm not kidding when I say about the militancy of the time, there was a historian whose name I'm forgetting. This goes back maybe 70 years. And she did a really fascinating book where she really looked at the social movements of the first half of the 19th century. And she actually mm -hmm. said something to like, this was an age of militant democracy. Okay. And there yeah. were others who, who, who looked back and said, that America was so promising because of these forces that were emerging. So for conservatives, it was always a case of reverence to the past. And when they spoke of the founders, they talked about them as if they were divinely inspired. Okay, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. I mean, by the way, which, and then if I jump well ahead, because there's no need to tell the whole story of conservatives' use and abuse in the past, let's come all the way forward to the likes of Ronald Reagan. Mm -hmm. And Ronald Reagan is probably the most ma masterful conservative ever when it comes to constructing a past that might be appealing at a time of crisis. A past, you know, like he's the one who actually coined the, the, ter the expression, the slogan, make America great again. That was his 1980 campaign slogan that mm -hmm. then Trump plagiarized. OK, so again, for them, it was a matter of the founders. Now. It's also the case that you get someone who's, uh, if, what term we would apply to him, it's hard to say. He was a progressive, perhaps. He was a radical in, in it because the Republicans of their day, capital R Republicans, were radicals. Mm -hmm. And Lincoln himself had great political ambitions, so he never actually came out as an abolitionist exactly with a capital A. But obviously he, ha he hated slavery and he was he was eager to see if a way for us to transcend it. Well, in, in, uh, in uh, Lincoln's case, in Lincoln's case, he too wanted to sustain the memory of the founders. But what he did is he used the founders. Okay. And that's not a bad thing to use the founders. He used the founders to challenge the status quo in America. Okay. Um, and, and I mean, he used the founders in his as he then began his his, his drive to the to first effort to go for the Senate seat and then later for the presidency. He uh, he used the founders to to and he actually did research to show the degree to which the founders themselves either believed that slavery would come to an end or among them were very determined to see it come to an end. But given the you know the division of the states, there was only so much they could do at any given time. So. Conservatives generally revered the founders and did so all the way through to the likes of Reagan. Okay. And those on the left, if we think of Lincoln as on the left, 
they too, for many generations, grabbed hold of the founders, especially Thomas Paine, but not only Thomas Paine, as a way to challenge the status quo. Okay. Now, Matt's article, and I think this is something to consider, is really, is really a, a, an argument about the dissolution of a standard, long-standing narrative of what America is about. Okay, I mean we're we're at a time where conservatives are utterly they're 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 bereft of a narrative right now. Um, I'm not so sure that was long the case. I think Trump really, Trump and the folks who've now, you know, sort of mastered the the Republican Party, they they have become the party of of Dixie in many ways. They've become the party that would you know it's it's reverting to a kind of you know, suppression of the vote. You mm -hmm. know, you can almost imagine. I, I actually, you know, it sounds weird to say, but one can almost imagine that they'd like to revisit the 1890s and resurrect Plessy versus Ferguson, you know, separate but equal. I mean, it, it, clearly that's exactly the way they are behaving and they are driving their base. You know, I mean, Matt notes in the article that the appeal of the old Confederacy, the lost cause, is reduced nationally. But in terms of those who are the most, at, the, the kinds of folks who invaded the Capitol back in January, the kinds of folks who are so eager to deny any validity to the to the even the pandemic, these folks, you know, they see themselves as you know, have, you know, ra they wrap themselves not in the American flag, however much that may they may try. But they wrap themselves in the stars and bars, not the stars and stripes. So right. conservatives are kind of in trouble now. Sorry, I'm I'm going on a bit. Do you want me to jump to the liberals so we can? Well, I, I just wanted to maybe share a couple of thoughts on conservatives, yeah, and then please. we can. This is probably right. better to kind of sit with each one a little longer and mm -hmm. then move on. Because mm -hmm. um, I, I everything you said makes a lot of sense to me, um, and and yeah, like and what Matt's been. Uh, part of how he opens this piece and in, in talking about kind of what history has meant to conservatives in the last say five or six years. Um, it's, it's, there's, there's no more, um, they're not really interested in uh, getting a, a certain historiography, right? They're not really interested in, okay. is this in fact the correct order of things? Did this happen here at this time? It, was this the intention? Um, there's been kind of this, uh, just this mushing of, you know, uh, he, he cites this example of, um, uh, of Trump mentioning, uh, the Andrew Jackson, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, he, he said, I, you know, I, I don't remember I, Trump had said something about Andrew Jackson's thoughts on the civil war, civil war. which right. of course, uh, to anyone who's familiar with the, the 19th century, uh, Andrew Jackson did not, uh, he was not president certainly during the civil war. And I, I'm, Fairly certain he was not alive during the Civil War. Yeah, <laughs> he was dead. <laughs> yes. So, um, but it doesn't matter because it's not uh, the the project is not trying to get history right uh, for for the right. Um, it's uh, I think it's twofold, right? Because of course the the right wing has there's different elements that make up the right uh, because in America, political parties and um, political ideologies don't cut uh, horizontally, they cut vertically, meaning rich people and poor people stuck kind of within the, the right, rich people and poor people stuck within yeah. the left, liberals. Um, and so for the rich, I mean, I think 
part of what he's saying is that you know it's to uh, it's the the massive gains that have been won through say the civil rights movement and and other kind of social progressive uh, uh, movements and aspirations that um, you know it's it's uh, really it's not possible for people to for like the vast majority of people obviously there's exceptions we all know what the exceptions are but the vast majority of people you know um, are I think in America both are against racism and certainly wouldn't uh, call themselves a racist that yeah. there, there has been in fact uh, kind of a social um, there has been social progress in in how people um, understand each other uh, you know I was on uh, was on one of these shows with Ben last week talking about the fact that you know as far as like the the developed world goes the US actually has um, far more uh, progressive views on immigration than a lot of European countries do, for instance. Yes. Um, and there's reasons why, and we, you know, you should watch that other video that I did with Nando and Ben on that um, for the argument, because not, I don't want to go into it now, but the point being is that the kind of the, the wealthy, the powerful on the right, uh, I, it seems like they have just kind of given up on, history that they don't really want they don't really have a use for it in in like in a real sense like history as actual you know what actually happened um mm -hmm. they certainly have use for myth of course but they've always had use for myth um but i think for working people so much of like the manifestations we've seen on the right over the last again the you know let's say five or six years um things like QAnon, for instance uh are it's it's just to me it's so obvious that it's like it's instantiations of of the fact that people are like utterly powerless that they uh people are in situations where they have almost no control over their lives anymore and uh you get these really horrific right-wing variants of it uh where um if you can't control anything else you're going to try to control your family and so sometimes that means protecting your family, but other times that means dominating your family. Um, and uh, you get this kind of tribalism, you get xenophobia and nationalism. Um, and then you also get it, it, you know, it's very convenient to then say uh, a conspiracy theory is, is the explanation for this. Um, or I can, I can go online and I can say something um, because it's ostensibly uh, democratic in the sense that anyone can say anything, even though obviously it's completely controlled by corporations interested in making money. Um, but people can go online and they can accumulate a following and people say, well, I, you know, there's all these people that want to listen to me online. Um, that has to count for something. Um, and that's their means of trying to, to have some kind of control over their lives. But um, it's in actuality, like working people and a lot of middle-class people uh, have far less control over how they spend the majority of their waking lives today than they did say 50, 60 years ago, uh, that it has just been this massive domination of the ruling class. Uh, and, and now history is basically just, um, you know, uh, when, when it's invoked, it, it's just kind of like, um, it's like an amnesia that it, you know, you're, there, there once was something better. I once had dreams. I once had aspirations. There once was a promise of something. And now it's, it's hard to really get a sense of where it's all gone. Um, and that's where Make America Great makes a lot of sense for a right-winger because I don't know when it was great, but at one point things were better. And the things right now are all bad. So we should, we should go back to the good times. 
And, and that's all history ends up uh, becoming at this point, I think, for uh, certainly for the right. Um, but yeah, and by the way, I, I chose a mugs especially for the occasion. <laughs> Here, wait, let me, we can blow. American epics. Okay, Thomas Hart Benton, does that name mean anything to you? No. It's okay if it doesn't. Right. He, he's a, he was a major artist in the 20s and 30s. Actually, he's descended from, it's a Missouri family. He was descended from Th Thomas Hart Benton, who was a U.S. senator. I believe that was his name. Anyhow, and he also got involved in Hollywood, and his, his work was very much attached to the idea of Ameritarians. And I was thinking about that, and I'll, I won't leave our subject. And I was thinking how once upon a time, an artist could, could create an image, person, a cohort, uh, or an, an image of the landscape that would give one a sense of what America was about and might become. Mm -hmm. However flawed it might be, however much it might have been, you know, a Caucasian view of things. The point is that's, and, but today, today I, I'm, I've been struggling to think of, of art that, that could transcend and enable Americans to see themselves without chastising them. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, now let me come back to, to the conservatives. I mean, let's, let's be clear that conservatives have for so many years attacked higher education, that I don't even know to what extent that they've even cultivated serious history mm -hmm. that might in some ways work. And I can give, by the way, I actually thought about this when you said what we should talk about it. And I can tell you, I've been thinking about this for, for a few, I've been thinking about this for 40 years, but I was thinking about it recently and I noticed when I was in the city in New York a couple of weeks ago, and I was down at um, McNally Jackson, the bookstore, and I was reminded of how many American writers, whether they're historians, novelists, or otherwise, are trying to construct narratives mm. of America right now. So, I mean, I came across this thing. Not, I'm not promoting anyone's book. I haven't even read it yet. The Sum of Our Dreams. It's like a one-volume synthesis of American history that's clearly intended to make an argument. Mm -hmm. uh, Matt Karp refers to the same thing that we've all been sort of <laughs> banging our heads against the wall over. John Meekham or Meacham's The Soul right. of America. Talk about emptiness, okay? <laughs> I mean, utterly empty. And sadly, sadly, and then, of course, then there was the sort of liberal left effort, These Truths by Jill Lepore, mm -hmm. which I can't say I've read the whole thing. I don't like long books unless they're written by British Marxists, okay? Um, or American Marxists, for that matter. But what I'm getting at is that... It, this, is, this is the book list that you don't buy, by the way, just so everyone's clear. This is <laughs> right. not, this is not, we'll do recommendations later. This is, don't buy these. Yeah, ones. right. So what, what, I'm get, what I'm getting at is that I do think whether we're talking in terms of the politics, we haven't even discussed liberals just yet, but we'll move into that. Whether we're talking at the political level, because all politicians try to speak in some way to connect themselves to a narrative of America, mm -hmm. Okay. But it's really tough. Conservatives can't do it right now because they've also they've literally claimed that they're that they're the ones who are being persecuted. Right. OK, then. OK, so historians are trying their best to come up with the narrative. Um, politicians are going back and forth. They don't know what it's like chickens with their heads cut off kind of thing. Um, the folks who are, you know, without a narrative that you were just referring to, 
they will reach for an, a more intimate narrative, right? Whether it be family, which, you know, one hopes they can defend their families against the kinds of onslaughts that are taking place, or on a larger scale, be it, you know, the church they go to or the ethnic group they belong to or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. So, and I, we are in the midst of this, but this has been going on. And I can tell you, I've been writing about this. This is actually the subject that connects a lot of my work for many years, going all the way back to the 80s when uh, the new right, I did a whole book on the new right and the crisis of history and their, the struggle to control the narrative, which it remains to me the question, and take hold of our history is in many ways the call for the left, and I go on to that later, for the left to mm -hmm. cultivate the narrative. By the way, cultivating the narrative takes more than writing a book, okay? Right. That's, that's important, okay? What it means is we, and I wrote an article oh, four or five years ago. It's available on History News Network. Is that where? Yeah. Where I said it was time for the left, and I meant historians and activists of the left, to start cultivating the narrative within the movements that were emerging. I mean, if you, right? But I'll leave that for a moment so we can deal with the liberals. The problem with liberals is, is that for a long time they had a narrative. And, that, and I'm not talking about the narrative that, FDR proposed. FDR's narrative was more radical than the narrative we think of, of usually with liberals. But mm -hmm. the liberal narrative had a kind of built-in progressive momentum. And it didn't, and you know, it's the story I think Matt refers to it, where basically there's inequality and injustices and, and all of that, but in fact, groups mobilized and in essence, they transcended the inequality and the injustices. Somehow the promise of America became all the more real to more people, which by the way, in itself is a good thing. The problem was that liberals also generally did not talk about the fact that you can't celebrate the victories because mm -hmm. the victories will be followed by, if you like, not you had civil war reconstruction and then you had the age of Jim Crow and the Bourbon regimes in the South. We had the New Deal and the victories over fascism in World War II, and we got McCarthyism and basically driving out of left, real left voices from American public life. Mm -hmm. um, you see where, where, where I'm, I, I hope I'm making my point. Okay. So liberals themselves in the 70s had, had almost nothing to say mm -hmm. in the wake of the 60s as the right began its ascendance. They had nothing to say because coming out of the 70s, they had literally, the left in a broadest sense, had divided into liberals and the left and the forces that would be considered on the left, they splintered. That's when the term identity politics emerges. Okay, right. And labor was viewed as in some ways the antagonist because it represented the, the old left, right? right? So it took a while for the left to become I'm more aware of, of, of ourselves, you might say, because of course, labor is now not white. Okay. Right. And never was actually white itself. But the point is, it's decidedly diverse. And, and okay. So, but liberals literally ran from the past. They ran mm -hmm. from the past because they had no answer to the conservatives who offered the founders. Okay. And, and the, the, the declaration and, and then why did they run? Because further to the left, ethnic identity groups were demanding justice mm -hmm. for generation upon generation of what they viewed as, you know, slavery, 
uh, discrimination, segregation, and so on. Women were demanding in, okay? And when liberals look back, if God forbid they should have mentioned the name of some figure from the past, they would have been jumped. It, even Lincoln had become has become in a, a, you know a target in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, or as a friend of mine said, leave it to the left to tear down its own heroes after they pull the, the Confederate monuments down. Okay, um, so okay, so it's a crisis mm -hmm. in many ways. Not a crisis because it's terrible not to have a narrative. It's a crisis because we all know, I assume everyone watching this show, except for maybe a few trolls who join in, that we all know the degree to which we are in a deep shit crisis in this country that can only be resolved by moving left, by radical action, by going at, to, at the least in a social democratic direction. Mm -hmm. And liberals made it a point of crushing Bernie's campaign. So what do we do? Okay. And what Matt is saying is, sorry, and then I'll close up by wrapping. Mm -hmm. What Matt is saying is that when the future, I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing him, or at least I'm reading his mind, perhaps. <laughs> when the future looks so undecided, this is my argument now, I guess. So undecided and potentially bleak, right? Then Basically, when you look to the past, which you could do progressively, but they mm -hmm. won't do progressively because they've lied about the past for so long. When they look to the past now, even people on the left are using it as a way of, you know, if we can't have justice now, we'll have justice and we'll, we'll dump on the past. Okay, mm -hmm. we'll take the past apart. So it's if it, we've reached the end of history in Fukuyama's terms and mm -hmm. there's nowhere to go beyond it. Well, I guess what are we going to do? We end history. Right. Right. I mean, I mean, so much of what um, liberalism is about, of course, is, is, you know, it's, it's the focus is on the individual and the individual's rights. And, um, and so, so much of uh, like a liberal history, looking back to, you know, um, how was an individual wronged or how was, um, I mean, of course, like, like, liberals um it's not solely at, you know at the level of individuals but they they understand things in terms of um uh those things that are understood individually so things um so of course identity politics becomes like the uh like that's that's just like kind of part and parcel with liberalism today of um understanding the world through uh, identity categories many of which you know obviously many come through the actual real uh, relationships and bonds um, of real yeah. um, communities and people, but just as many of them are created through markets of, you know, market uh, categorization of, um, of consumer uh, uh, pockets or whatever. And so many like what it, what does it mean to be, um, you know, uh, a gay person? What does it mean to be a black person? What does it mean to be a woman? Um, and how do you then disentangle that from the way today in, you know, modern society, it's, it's much of those descriptions end up really just describing, uh, consumer choices or, um, things, you know, what you buy, what you wear, what you, uh, what you appreciate. Um, or it, it ends up becoming kind of like, uh, culturally, uh, essentialist notions of just, um, well, you know, all black people have a certain thing. There's, um, 
black people think a certain way, or of course that that's kind of become outdated, but it'll turn into, um, oh, well, there's, there's something called uh, black music. And then if you say, well, can a white person listen to, to black music? And those, or they'll say, sure, but can a white person make black music? And they'll say, well, I don't know. Um, and then the question is, well, what makes black music black music? Is it that music that black people listen to? Or is it uh, which, you know, if it's that music that people that black people listen to, then it would be any in every genre. So it's not that. Um, and then it becomes, well, then it's, you know, music made by uh, black people, but a certain, a certain kind of genres. And so then the only way to end up making sense of this ends up you have to then end up saying like it's a biological definition of of like race, but the reason I'm saying all this is because yes, all of I, these, I understand. yeah, I mean because all of these notions like it just it ends up just redounding to, um, you know, and this is I'm I'm trying to bring this into the the 1619 project because it ends up uh, uh, in the in you know the way that um, Michael Brooks so wonderfully said um, there's been a clip that's been going around um, and we we played on the Jacobin show recently. Uh, regarding this, of how um, uh, both the right and liberals end up naturalizing uh, social facts instead of historicizing social facts. That um, someone is a certain thing because they are essentially that quality, that identity, that um, characteristic. Uh, and and then any, any history that led to this moment where we understand this social fact as a social fact is completely erased. Yeah, if I could just, yeah, and I, I'll just mention two things to bolster what you're saying or to, and that, and th this, I, I will tell you, I picked up along the way, Adolf Reed, others, my own work on questions of determinism, okay, mm -hmm. determinism, which by the way, the left has often suffered. Some major intellectuals on the left who we've at, at times thought highly of have contributed to this. Think about technological determinism, economic determinism. Well, in the case of the 1619 project, you know, the way it's been, you know, talked about is as if they, um, it's the original sin, right? And if you're a Catholic, there is no, there is no wiping away original sin, or right. it's it's in the DNA, okay? Right. Which of course we're talking genetics and and uh, not we're not talking about real history, real real society, real cultural activity, real struggles. So it's, I'm really glad you mentioned that actually, because immediately after I finished rereading Matt Karp's piece, I grabbed, and I, you, I'm sure you're familiar with this book, um, a piece or a book by Stephen Jay Gould, The Mismeasure of Man. Uh, um, I've, which, I've not read it, but yes. Oh, it's it's like, it, it, you know, it, part of it is like a, it, it comes about, um, uh, as like a rebuttal to um, uh, an earlier instantiation of kind of this like race realist, this like cultural essentialist um, understanding um, uh, with the bell curve, um, oh. which uh, mm -hmm. Charles Murray, I don't know if you've noticed, is doing the rounds again right now. Um, I saw something. He's, got, that's, he's got a new book, is it? I don't know. Or is it but just they brought back? Is it they brought just him the fact back. that he's he's allowed back in like <laughs> like civil society is like I think an indictment of how far society like has fallen. I think when it comes to talking about race, but yeah. Um, but I wanted to read two quotes actually from the introduction to this um, on on uh, biological determinism. Um, so it's very wonderfully kind of segued. Um, 
but he says that uh, biological determinism is, in its essence, a theory of limits. It takes the current status of groups as a measure of where they should and must must be, even while it allows some rare individuals to rise as a consequence of their fortunate biology. And then he says later on, uh, we inhabit a world of human differences and predilections, but the extrapolation of these facts to theories of rigid limits is an ideology. And like, that's, that's what it is. I mean, it's like, this is like, ultimately, I think, uh, you know, liberals and conservatives, so much of how they have to understand the world immediately, and especially how they understand history has to be in ideological constructions, that it serves a, a, a function for them in the present of explaining, uh, I don't, not exclusively this, but part of the function is to, to explain and justify uh, political projects today, where, um, you know, why is it that liberals can't do more radical political action when it comes to uh, racial inequities uh, in this country? Well, um, there's just something about, you know, uh, the, you know, a white person psyche where they are just essentially racist. Um, they, you know, or a black person is essentially a certain, um, they have a certain mindset. Um, and so that these two mindsets can never deal with one another. They're, uh, they're necessarily antagonistic. Um, and then the the social facts of inequality, the obvious real social, you know, when you, it's just, it's like when you look at uh, housing, healthcare, um, uh, job markets, uh, when you look at basically who owns what resources in the U.S. and elsewhere, um, obviously there's inequities. And then, uh, it, but it's it's solidified, it's made, natural by saying that these things are, are uh, necessarily so because of a certain um, aspect of human nature or a certain aspect of, um, uh, yeah, I guess just human nature. Or, or, or they say that race is like a, a necessarily natural phenomenon, basically, that white people necessarily are racist or so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, th this whole thing about determinism, uh, you know, for years, I was I told my students that sometimes determinism can be so effective, what it becomes known as second nature that we just mm -hmm. take it for granted, you know. And you know, so it was like in the ancient world, there was a you know biological determinism, and which continued all the way through into the modern age, obviously as a as a way of thinking. Um, there was the theological determinism, of course, God made it so. Right. You know, there's the nat, you know, the sort of. Um, economic determinism, which everyone wants to believe, you know, re read anyone who's not a Marxist in a textbook when they refer to Marx and they'll tell you he was an economic determinist. Um, by the way, but I, Gerald Cohen, who was uh, fascinating, I don't know if he's still around or not, but- No, he, he unfortunately, he passed away, um, I think about 10 years ago. That's what I thought, but I didn't want to say yeah. that unless I was absolutely sure. Um, I mean, his was technological determinism, and which was not a helpful thing for the for the left at all. Um, sorry if if you, you admired the work. It's I'm telling you, it's no it's technological I, I, determinism. I do admire the work, um, and obviously, I I think you're right. Um, but uh, well, I, I think it's more complex than that. Uh, just um, it's actually it's funny. I'm going to on Wednesday. Um, on, on the Jacobin show, I'm, I'm going to do a, a segment on um, 
uh, historical materialism and yeah. uh, Marxist theory of history. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically saying, because it, it's a show on, on kind of scientific socialism and saying, you know, um, Marxist theory of history is not, in fact, technological, technological deterministic. Um, but and I also I, I don't because I think Cohen's Cohen's book is a reconstruction of of what Marx's argument is. And I think he's basically I think he's creating a correct reconstruction of Marx's argument. But I don't think either of them are properly technological determinists or they're they're not determinists when it comes to technology um, because he. Don't forget, f- Engels simplified Marx. Yeah, but but with Cohen, he's he's looking at the um, uh, the preface to the critique of political economy, and it's he's this is the whole um, the the relations fetter the forces, but the forces end up determining what the relations are. Um, but the the forces aren't just technology; it's it's um, it includes much more than that, but. I'll, I'll, I'll yeah, try to do I, it in like non-nerdy terms. That, you and I should take that up sometime at length. But all I can tell you is that I, my place to start is, is the manifesto. I also, which I also, I don't think Cohen is correct um, in the sense that I, I think, I don't think Marx is correct in his theory of historical materialism. I think he has an overly deterministic theory, but that's, that's a total, we can. Okay, well, I'm going to tell everyone now to watch out in the fall the reissuance of my book, The British Marxist Historians, mm-hmm. which offers, a, 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 I think, and I'm not offering it, I'm interpreting the work of the British Marxists. I think they radically transformed or, or restored the value of, of, uh, of class struggle to the heart of, of, of what Marxism is about. And, uh, and a complete and a re and a reconceptualization in many ways of what we would think of as social relations of production. Mm-hmm. Well, so maybe okay. So this is a good segue then to like what what does history mean to the left exactly? Um, this is actually um, I want your thoughts, uh, but I, I've like I've been having uh, an ongoing discussion with a friend of mine uh, who's very smart. Um, I would say smarter than me. Um, and, yeah, you must be smart. What can I say? Uh, <laughs> uh, but we we've been having this discussion of like what is the use of history to left politics, um, and like specifically because I, I we both read a lot of history, you know, um, but we have I think slightly different um, uh, we take away different things. So I, I guess I wanted your answer first uh, as. Hey as an actual historian, what, and on the left, what is the use of history for the left? Maybe it might sound kind of like an obvious, simple question, but, um, you well, know, okay. speci- if, you mean, if we on the left, well, the socialist left, or, the, you know, the Marxist left, mm-hmm. believe that the history of all hitherto existing societies is the history of class struggle, right? If that's the case, then mm-hmm. we can better appreciate the answer to this question. Are you ready? Yeah. Hit me. <laughs> right. Why do ruling classes fear history? And by the way, if you if if people ever come to to doubt the value of history, just remember, the ones who value history the most because they fear it the most have always been ruling classes. Hmm. Ask yourselves, selves, why is it that the rulers, the folks who are usually in the driver's seat, are so determined to suppress 
efface, and when possible, appropriate the stories that we would value the most. And But in doing so, completely drain them of their radical content. Mm -hmm. Well, because, look, if you have no narrative, then you don't have a politics. Mm -hmm. Okay, and what I mean by that is history, memory, narrative, give us a sense of what is possible, okay? And one thing, and we, and by the way, in that regard, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say something, and people can get pissed at me. I do this all the time. Howard Zinn's work is not good history for the left, okay? Right. Because it's a story of defeat upon defeat upon defeat upon defeat. In which case, go study business. It doesn't pay to know any history, okay? No, the, but what he what he was trying to challenge us perhaps with is the idea that there have been those struggles. What he fails to appreciate is that even in defeat at times, the struggles make a difference. So for example, let's take, uh, crudely put, take the Bernie campaign. Are we going to say that because Bernie didn't make it to the presidency, we haven't seen a change on the liberal left side? No, I mean, that would be foolish. Well, so so let's let's think about what history is to the left. The struggles need a memory. They need a narrative. Now, you can always treat history as entertainment, if you like, but that's a decidedly non-left understanding of it. It's that history is the, if you like, it's the memory, it's the encouragement, it's the inspiration, and it's the warning as well. Okay. And if, and what we need to remember is that we did abolish, we did, th there was a struggle. Look, Matt Carp's work on slavery, on the, on civil wars, I think is the best right now. Okay. There was a struggle. It was a revolution of the left. Okay. I think people who are dismissing the new deal, which is usually a thing that people on the right do anyone on the left who fails to understand that even the 1930s, had something of a revolution to it in terms of working class understandings, working class mobilizations, and the fact that they chose a president, okay, who definitely enabled them to do things that would not otherwise have been possible. So let, let's understand that the, for a start, it reminds us that the way things are is not the way they've always been. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, it reminds us that human struggle matters, okay? I'm not telling people to be sacrificial, self, you know, just you know, or anarchic about it. But the fact is in solidarity, amazing things are accomplished. And that's the story. That, I mean, we have to redeem these stories that have been over and over again, denied and suppressed. And look, even now, sorry, let me, even now, this book, The Soul of America, this is the, this is, Meacham is the historical mind right now of Biden. And if, and if you believe that the way to transcend this crisis is unity and praying for the soul of America, or indeed believing that somehow the better better angels of our nature, as Lincoln himself said, are going to necessarily present themselves, well, then you're kidding yourself. Then, then indeed, just go out and tend your garden and wait for the apocalypse, okay? No, it's the case that we have a responsibility. We, I mean, what does it mean to be an intellectual? Okay, everybody thinks, so everybody's an intellectual. But some of us spend more of our time trying to enable people to see things that they feel but don't necessarily recognize. And the reason they feel that is they've been raised in the course of a history. 
Yeah, you right. going. I'm going to stop. No, no, I, I appreciate that. Um, and I largely agree with everything you've said. Um, so it's, it's nice to know that like, it's like what you said is, is I think how I've been trying to like, how I've been understanding it. Um, and so I think you put it really well. Um, and on, on the, uh, on intellectuals, um, I, uh, like a, a quote that's resonated with me from someone, I don't think he's ever been on, uh, give them an argument, although Ben should book him, um, that someone uh, that uh, I'm close to, Vivek Chibber, kind of put it really pithily of saying that um, the role of intellectuals is to make the complex simple. And uh, and so many intellectuals obviously don't do that. Like that they, it's, I think they, it's um, kind of a, an evasion of, of kind of what, at least what a left public intellectual is supposed to be, um, that, you know, spending their time trying to understand the world and the past and, um, and kind of theoretical conceptions and, and trying to put it into, into a way that then becomes actually socially useful for others. Um, but, um, so part of the, part of this like disagreement that I've had with my friend is, um, on, uh, on the idea of taking lessons from the past and, and they've said, and, and I, I think I, I basically agree with yeah. this, although I, I think we ended up, we sidestep the issue, um, that, um, you know, we, we won't, we don't want to take like just hard lessons from the past in the sense that this person, uh, this, yeah. this, uh, this political project did this, they pursued this, um, goal, they came up against these obstacles and they failed or they succeeded, and then we go, oh, well, if we do this political project, um, we pursued in this way, then we will, in fact, succeed, or we will, in fact, fail. That taking a lesson in in a very kind of, maybe, let's say, yeah. literal sense of um, recreating the past is, is not at all, I think, what the left, uh, how the left understands history, or what the left should be doing with history. Yeah. yeah it seems you know, like it's, um, more, it's more that it, we end up... Um, we we end up building our conceptions of the world through uh, through history as as almost like experiments. I think, but sorry, I, I cut you off. No, 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 I cut you off. Um, you know, I'll, I'm going to tell you a story, and then I'll explain why I'm telling it. So, my daughter was in, who's now like forty. She was in high school what twenty three years ago, something like that. Or no, it was or my younger daughter who was a bit younger. But you get the idea. One of them came home and told me that uh, the teacher that day in, in history and social studies, who I, a teacher I happen to like a lot, um, said that a good way to understand history is that history repeats itself. Mm. And I just, I just exploded, okay? And I went in to talk to him and I explained to him that why bother to teach history if it's just gonna repeat itself? Hell, you might as well just sit around and wait for it to happen all over again, right? Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, I know it sounds silly, and but that's it. But if you think you're fifth, you're 15, and you hear that, mm -hmm. if that isn't going to put you off history as having any real meaning and purpose, it'll it's going to drive you to the most individualistic of behaviors, at least as I see it. Okay, so what I and he asked me, why do we teach history? I mean, don't we want to prepare people for these things? And I said, look, history doesn't repeat itself. You know, Twain said it rhymes. Mm -hmm. And that's true. We have a language and we, do, we talk about revolutions. Is the American Revolution the same as the French Revolution or the Chinese and the Russian? But we have, right? We call them revolutions. Mm -hmm. but, but, but what, what it is, is that 
we don't we can't draw lessons from we we can't draw lessons that tell us exactly what to do right but it ought to inform our our own thinking when as we make sense of the world so there are lessons i draw but they don't tell me what to do so mm -hmm. for example i mean you've heard me say this before i think this is true of of pain i also think it was true of marx and i think and pain's success should attest to it and that is pain always said people used to say you know pain was no genius but he wrote he wrote the kinds of things that uh Locke and others had said, which, by the way, he went well beyond Locke and others. Yeah, it's a pretty high bar for genius then. Yeah, right. But but what but what made Payne truly an historical genius, to my mind, is that he really did see the world about him, mm -hmm. and what and and he saw the possibilities that prevailed in them, and he saw the degree to which people were actually. Were, were were carriers of ideas and aspirations, and and so as an intellectual, his task was to articulate what he saw in their lives in a shared sense to mm -hmm. enable them to see what they might yet accomplish. So we study history in part for our own intellectual inspiration, also to realize, as I said, look, I used to tell my students because I had to come up with something. I said, look, we study history for the purpose of of critique, okay? We can grab it onto ideas of the past, like the arguments of pain, the arguments of Marx, the struggles of labor, the struggles of, of slaves and so on. And we can, we can throw them at the present. Mm -hmm. That's what Frederick Douglass did, okay? So that for the purpose of critique, we can do it for the purpose of reminding people of how it's possible that they actually enjoy certain things that their ancestors did not. Okay, so we how times may be bad, but this is not the age of slavery. Okay, right. well, and that also I mean, and it's it, those it, kinds of things, and when you draw that, and we've got to be more original in our thinking at the same time, right? Right. Well, so I mean, but to your point, I mean, like part of studying history is understanding uh, social phenomena as distinct phenomena that have beginnings and therefore endings. That um, and again, that's part of Matt's critique of, of 1619, and um, and uh, he's like just he's mostly just kind of like aggregating a bunch of other critiques of 1619 yeah, as, right, of, of right. historians that are basically saying like this is a really wrong-headed way to think about uh, certainly race, but just like a social phenomena where you say it's always been there. It's like it's it's what makes America America, um, and it just it ends up becoming really lazy because then it again, in the way that Michael said, it naturalizes it rather than historicizes right. it. And by yeah. historicizing, we have a greater appreciation of how things came about the way they came about. And understanding that process also helps us understand, like understanding the causality of, of what led to what helps us understand as political actors, uh, what is driving a process, a social process, and therefore, what do we have to be targeting uh, in our politics? What do we have to um, uh, take down or uh, confront uh, politically? Uh, because, you know, um, if you think that, uh, for instance, um, exploitation, oppression, domination, all of these like really the most horrific aspects of, of social life, uh, if you think that they are something that uh, 
people learn um, that uh, you have to be like culturally initiated into this process. Um, and that's what creates them. Then the only thing that you should do in order to get rid of them is just teach people to unlearn them or to think a different way. Right. But if you think that they exist independent of whether or not you learn them or independent of, um, uh, of your particular ideological explanation of a process that a worker is exploited by their boss and they might understand it ideologically in any number of ways. They might understand it as, oh, my boss is exploiting me, or they might understand it as, uh, I'm not, I'm not trying hard enough. I really, I, you know, I'm failing right now. I really need to, you know, push myself harder. I need to, you know, be a better worker. I need to sell myself better. Right. Doesn't at all, even if they think all of that things, it doesn't mean that they're not being exploited as, as a worker in a, in a workplace run by a capitalist boss. And so understanding these things as distinct social phenomena that have real um, causality in them, I think is, uh, it, to me, it's, it's almost, it's kind of, that is what left historic history is so much about is trying to, instead of just saying, well, these things have always existed. People are always going to end up like this people um, that, that you build the social phenomena into something like human nature or into just what society just has to be, right? That, that the left says that capitalism is a distinct social phenomena, distinct from other kinds of uh, uh, social property relations and um, kind of the, the jargony, it's the mode of production or whatever, the, yeah, the sure. you know. Um, we say it's a distinct thing. Um, and we say that uh, because we try to be scientific and I think we're right in saying it's a distinct thing, but saying that it's, 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 uh, that it's historically distinct means that we can pinpoint when it starts and we can pinpoint what, it, what makes it uh, its own thing. And therefore we can identify those aspects of capitalism that we have uh, kind of the greatest antagonism to and want to uh, dismantle. Right. It's not just, society sucks, life sucks, everything's bad. It's no, the fact that we are dependent for our very survival on the market because a small number of people own the vast majority of the resources in society. Uh, me, like that is a, a specific social phenomena that leads to specific social outcomes that we have uh, a problem with as like ethical, moral people. Yeah. Um, uh, so it, it's, it's, it's necessary to understand the world, but then also to actually have real political strategies to deal with it as it actually exists. Yeah. You know, I mean, geez, you just said a lot. And I'm, I'm like, sorry, sorry. No, no, no. Don't apologize. I was thinking, which, what am I going to choose to respond to in all of that? Um, I don't know if this helps or not, but I never really understood the term. This, by the way, I'm going way back in my own lifetime to you know, and I, I don't think I ever properly understood the term resistance. I mean, I knew that what a, the resistance. But if someone had said to me when I was 18, the resistance, I would have thought of World War II and the French mm -hmm. resistance, those kinds of things. Okay, and and then I uh, I, I read these British historians, E.P. Thompson and 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 others who really were dealing with you know, peasants and artisans and others, and the means by which they were basically either 
re resisting, well, in the case of the Industrial Revolution, the imposition of uh, machinery, okay, going further back, the imposition of new taxes by the lords on, on, on an estate. Mm -hmm. and, I, and then I was teaching in a prison my first year here at the U University of Wisconsin-Green Bay, and I... Um, and the, it was, the classes were set up so that if you were teaching for an hour and a half in a prison class, there was always a break in the middle so that all the inmates could go back to their cells and, and have a smoke. Okay. And one of the things I noticed that there were there were prisoners who stuck around the classroom or stuck around the hallway, which by the way was unacceptable behavior, in quotes. Okay. Forbidden right. behavior. And and I remember. Yeah, they wanted to talk, schmooze, whatever. And one day they were all taken back. I mean, they, the guards just literally together brought, took them all back. And I was talking to one of the guards and I said, uh, oh, that was, that's fascinating how on certain, uh, for days on, on end, you didn't seem, guys didn't do anything. And then all of a sudden you did. And he said, yeah, you know, you just get tired of making demands, even on these guys. You know, And I was thinking how, that resistance on their part to being ordered on all those other days had that impact. This is a very minor, you know, trivial example of it. But I thought about it in terms on a, on a scale of a class of working people, whether they were peasants or slaves and others, and you could, and the degree to which, you know, they, they would suffer terrible punishments. Okay. But it was also the case that people that it, collectively they would carve out something better than that, which was imposed upon them. But that's resistance, of course. I'm not saying, you know, more than that. You know, there's resistance, mm -hmm. rebellion, and, and revolution. Mm -hmm. But, it, it, you know, history can also, in its own way, sort of just spark our imaginations to see possibilities. I, I, that, that's, that's what I get at. I get out of history the reminder that the way things are is not the way they have to be because they've not always been this way. But I also think... And this I really got from the historians and Payne and the others is, and I, I'm repeating myself so we don't have to go on all night with this, but I, I think we really have to appreciate that we don't know everything. And, and sure as hell, we're experiencing the same reality that most other people are. And the only advantage we might have at times is where we spend more of our time reading and writing and thinking, which they don't have the opportunity to do. Which, so that doesn't mean that licenses us to tell them what to do. It, it, it compels us to pay closer attention to what's on their minds, to what aspirations they might have, what antagonisms they feel toward. And other, that's the makings of a, of a movement. You know, it's the makings of a, of mm -hmm. a struggle. Right. No, that's, that's really well put. Um, Cause it, it reminds me um, uh one of the last things you said, I mean, part of, uh, again, part of like understanding and, and reading and, and, and appreciating history, um, is, is like the realization of, uh, what, what aspects of life are truly human and what aspects are, mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe, uh, it's a different culture. It's a different, um, circumstance or something. But what you see is that, you know, at the end of the day, human beings, despite cultural differences, despite different nationalities, pigments, gender, whatever, like most of us, like most of our needs are basically the same things. Like that most of us 
don't want to be dominated or exploited. Most right. of us uh, will, like you're saying, like, I think, I think the example you give is really useful because you have to explain this at like, at the, at the minor level, as you said, or like the micro level, like that it's not just, um, sometimes the left is, you know, accused of, well, everything is like at this massive world historic, like there's the competing classes of, you know, um, and it's like these, like, two giant titans, you know, fighting it off of of the ruling class and the working class or something, or the bourgeoisie and the proletariat or something. But, um, but you can understand it at, in like, in the mic, at the micro level, at the, the, the minor level of just, you know, how people in a given circumstance, um, reject, uh, you know, uh, being treated subhuman or, um, or being oppressed, being dominated. Um, and, uh, and that's, I think, like, it's so, to me, it's just like a, a ne- like one of the most important, like, cornerstones of, of left politics is this, like, universalism. Of, and, and again, I'm shouting out Jackman Show because we just did a show on this with Nivedida uh, last week, uh, Nivedida Majumdar. Um, and, but this is like, you have to, like, to, to be on the left. I think you, your starting premise is that, um, you know, despite cultural differences, despite all these, all these like obvious differences that like that we spend so much time thinking about, um, that we are in fact, uh, human beings that have certain human, have a human nature and, and certain human needs. Um, and that's part of, I think, and it's, I think it's correct. I think you can scientifically show that, but I think it's also like necessary for any kind of emancipatory political project to think that, human beings actually can uh, get along despite uh, despite these differences. Um, and it's a political project to overcome the differences uh, rather than yeah. concretize them, make them more real than, than they already are. Well, that, that they appear to be. Um, before yeah. you say anything else, I wanted to just say to the audience that um, we're going to go in a little bit, but if you guys have some questions, we can probably spend a few minutes answering oh, some questions. Sure. Yeah. Um, so in the in the in the YouTube chat, um, I see there's a bit of a discussion going on. But if you want us to say anything about what you're thinking, if you want us to clarify something, or if you just have a question on history or not, if you know if it's a good question and it's not in history, we might still read it. But it, sh- it has to be good. Um, but we'll get to that. Uh, but Harvey, I I, I want yeah. if you want to respond or, or share some more thoughts. No, I, 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 we should leave this for maybe you and I can take up on a, a take all this up again in a Jack. If you if you got time, we can do a Jacobin show around these kinds of kinds of things. Okay, because yeah. I really would love. I'm not seeing. Am I? Is there a way as I look at the screen that I can actually see what people are? Uh, there should be a tab um, that's called comments. You should be able to see the the YouTube comments there. I'm funny. I, oh, comments up here on the right. Yes. yes. Oh, geez. There I, you go. Maybe it's just well, I didn't get to see what they were saying about us. So. Yeah, it's me. It sometimes it's for the best, but so far I think tonight's been pretty good. Um. Uh. Okay, and this is maybe a a, a lightning round question. Uh, maybe not. I don't know. Um, has Harvey read, this is Andy, who was just on a moment ago. Yeah. Has Harvey read Don't Blame Us, Suburban Liberals, and the Transformation of the Democratic Party by Lily Geismer? Sounds like her book fits nicely into what you've been saying. 
I haven't. I you forgive me. Obviously, I I should look into it if it's something that will help me say my my ideas more clearly. <laughs> but thank you, Andy. Um, Can I just respond to one of them? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I see. Uh, Jason, this is revolution, right? <laughs> yeah. Is Aaron Rodgers going to be a Bronco? God. Well, I don't know. We'll talk sometime about that. I'm looking forward if 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 he sits out. This year from the Packers, Rogers. I'm hoping that Jordan Love rises to the occasion. That's all. I'll leave it at that. Okay. Uh, Eric had asked us any current event stuff that are giving either of us any hope right now. Ah, yes, yes, yes. You go first. You got something, or because if you don't, right off the you go, you you go, you go. Okay. Look, I I'm never a pessimist, but I'm never an optimist either. So I look at. To me, that's what history taught me to do, is look at possibilities by thinking about transpo- things that transpired in the past. But I'll tell you something which I heard, and I think we should take it seriously. It gives me hope, but it's not like a grand hope. Pelosi apparently has finally bowed, unless someone's heard otherwise, to the demands of the squad. And that is that apparently... There's this idea regarding the infrastructure plan that the bipartisan plan that the Republican Democratic team put together, which is hardly worth talking about, um, normally would come before the House and then go to the Senate. In this case, the squad said, no, here's what you do. Let's have it that, that we hold the bipartisan plan to go in tandem with the much larger infrastructure plan. And that if they don't pass the reconciliation plan for the infrastructure, then we're not going to vote to pass the, 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 the um, bipartisan plan. In other words, this is the first time I think there's real evidence that the squad has made its made itself heard. And we, I don't think we've been hearing a lot about that in the media, but that's, that's, I heard that from a couple of DC sources. So that gives me a little bit of hope. And I'll explain how important it is. If we can't get the For the People Act and the PRO Act, we desperately, I mean, desperately need a massive infrastructure plan, not simply for the infrastructure needs that we have, but also, and this is where the left, somehow we have got to figure out by way of the congressional left, the labor movement, and ourselves in whatever capacities we can act, we have got to, to remind the Biden team that once they get that infrastructure plan passed, he must act with executive orders so that anyone receiving income pay by way of the infrastructure plan is guaranteed health care, guaranteed at least a $15 minimum wage, and guaranteed collective bargaining rights. I mean, that that can be done with the executive orders. Now, if a Republican's elected in 2024, he can undo all those orders. But you've got to give people rights for them to feel like they have to defend the rights, because in the meantime, they don't know if it's worth fighting for them in light of the state of the Congress itself. That's just my thinking on that. That gives me hope. Hmm. Uh, the thing that gives me hope that I think is actually complementary what, to what Harvey just said, um, it's actually something that we recently covered, uh, not this past weekend, but the weekend before on weekends, the other Jackman show we do with, 
um, and Nando did a segment on this, uh, which is that uh, the Teamsters recently just had their convention um, and the more progressive reform uh, elements within the Teamsters, it's a coalition, they um, successfully got a number of reforms through that uh, TDU has been uh, oh, wow. fighting for for a long time. Um, and there's, there's extensive, um, and, you know, again, you should watch that segment on that. Um, but it's, to me, it's important. Um, and sorry, there's someone in the hall. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Uh, New York life. Um, uh, it's to me, it's important, of course, because, uh, my politics, how much, how I understand my politics is that, uh, a necessary, not just a necessary, like the, the spearhead of, of left politics is going to be a revived labor movement. And over the last few years, we've seen um, teacher strikes. We've seen teachers become more militant. Uh, we've seen uh, increasing uh, nurses strikes and and more militant nurses. And I think the the third ingredient, the trifecta to get a to get things moving again in American labor is um, is logistics, which uh, yeah. the Teamsters is are kind of at the heart of, um, and part of that's with UPS. Part of that's also with um, with Amazon. So that's what I think. It's uh, it's going to be some combination of of these unions uh, and these workers. That certainly not the extent of of like the you know the revitalization of the labor movement, but it'll be an important um, kind of uh, triplet uh, to again to get the ball rolling and um, and so. Uh, the reform slate hasn't uh, taken leadership. There's an election later this year that people should be paying attention to. Um, but things after this convention look good. So I'll leave it at that. Um, I like that one. So, and then, and then that's, that's the whole thing of, you know, having the labor movement on the one hand, uh, you know, militant and fighting for, on behalf of its members, it's, it's working people, fighting for their interests through unions uh, and then progressive politicians in an office that can then work off of one another. This is like any time where um, social democratic politics has truly been effective in the 20th century, at the turn of the, the century into the 20th century, it's been this, um, uh, this uh, combination. Um, and that's not saying you know, because it happened once, it has to happen again. <laughs> but it, we take it as um, we it, it becomes a, a useful instruction for how to understand, uh, you know, just the nature of, of this fight. I have no idea what's going on out there. So. <laughs> Sorry if it's distracting everyone. Um, but um, anyways, perhaps um, maybe that's a good spot to leave it, actually. <laughs> if, if you don't I mind. I'll just respond to one of them if it's okay. Pranay, am I pronouncing that properly? Um, says, I hope they block all Manchin's bills until he's powerless. That's true, but I can tell you, if you go back five months, maybe four months, Manchin was ready for a, a, a $4 trillion infrastructure plan. So let's see how he tries to wheedle his way out of this, because we've now discovered that um, he and the other corporate Democrats aligned with any number of Republicans are more than prepared to go big on infrastructure as long as there's no Green New Deal attached to it. So let's see how that that works out. Okay, that's that's uh, something to follow. Okay, that sounds good. Um, 
I, we'll leave it there. Uh, people should uh, become a patron. Uh, go to patreon.com slash Ben Burgess. Uh, there will be another show later in the week that you can catch. Um, so I recommend you do that. Um, I believe Ben interviewed uh, Bronco Martisic. Uh I hope I didn't mess that up. He's a Jacobin staff writer. Um, we had a we were just speaking with him on weekends recently. He's like one of the uh, smartest political commentators there is. So if you want if you want more Bronco, you should subscribe and, and check out Ben's interview. Um, and on that note, I think we'll leave it. Um, so thanks to everyone watching. Uh, thank you, Harvey. Thank uh, you, Dale. Nice to see you again. Always nice to see you. Uh, we'll probably be speaking again soon. So. I hope so. All right, everyone. Have a good night. And uh, all right. Bye, Harvey. <laughs>